Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. How often do you take time to intentionally reflect on your relationships? You know, most of us could be a bit more habitual about this. And that is why I'm so thrilled to announce that my newest book, Love Every Day, is out in the world at last. It is packed with 365 reflections that will help you build this rewarding daily habit and cultivate relational self-awareness for healing and growth all year long. The readings will guide you to more deeply understand the impact of your past and your partner's past on your relationship. You'll also explore how to get your needs met, enhance communication, improve intimacy, and address relationship problems. So whether you're single, in a relationship, or between relationships, Love Every Day is really going to resonate with you. It's a beautiful guide that is perfect for your own nightstand and as a gift for someone special. There's even a fancy little ribbon for marking your place. Love Every Day invites you to develop awareness, curiosity, and empowerment so you can be seen and loved as your most authentic self and heal from times when you weren't. With this daily practice, you and your relationships will flourish throughout the year. You will find Love Every Day wherever you get your books, or you can find the link in the show notes to order it from loveeverydaybook.com. Happy reading. Hi there. Welcome to another episode of Reimagining Love. Today's episode is for the parents, the step or bonus parents, the grandparents, and others who are invested in nurturing the next generation because we're talking today about growing up in the digital age. And my guest is the very wonderful Dr. Devorah Heitner. Dr. Devorah Heitner is an author and a speaker. She's really gifted at offering practical, timely, and non-judgmental advice about technology and parenting in the digital age. Schools and nonprofits consult with Dr. Heitner about digital wellness policies, and she consults with app developers and tech companies to help design ethical products and messaging to kids. 
Her two books on parenting and technology are Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World, and ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. Devorah earned a PhD in Media, Technology, and Society from Northwestern University, and her writing on kids and technology can be found in the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN Opinion, Fast Company, and other places. She's also the parent of a teenager herself. I really enjoyed sitting down with Dr. Heitner for this conversation because these topics certainly hit close to home for me as a parent. And the power and scope of technology continues to change so quickly. It is vital that as parents, we stay educated about our own relationships with our devices and our platforms so that we can mentor and model for our kids. I hope that you find this conversation informative and helpful. Let's get into the episode. Devora, thank you so much for being here with me today. It's great to be here. Well, I'm really glad to have you on the show, and I cannot wait to talk with you about your brand new book, Growing Up in Public, which just hit a major bestseller list. I'm so, so, so proud of you and happy for you and happy for all of us and all of the people who get to benefit from your brilliance and your like really practical wisdom. So congratulations. Thank you. I'm still kind of shocked about <laughs> it because it's so hard to get people to talk about kids and social media from anything other than a panicked perspective. So I'm really excited that there's an audience for a book that says maybe our kids are going to be okay. Oh my gosh, my gosh. Okay, so before you talk with us about how our kids are going to be okay, I want to talk about you for a moment. So may I ask you the relational self-awareness question? Absolutely, go for it. Okay, so on this show, you know, we're always talking about how we are a blend of you know, strengths and forever growing edges. So I would love for you to talk with us about a growing edge that you are currently working on in one of your important relationships and what it has been teaching you these days. Yeah. So a growing edge for me is managing my anxiety and nagging with my 14-year-old who just started high school and who's really craving independence. And the executive function demands in high school are just like insane, honestly, like not realistic. Like when in your life are you going to have nine jobs a day with nine different bosses that last for 42 minutes each, right? Like they're like, it's preparation for life. I'm like, no, thankfully life isn't like that. Actually, you can focus a little more in anything else you'll do. And you don't need to bring nine sets of materials for your job every day, right? So I don't think the executive you know, function demands make sense, but I just want to help so badly. Like I want to put those clean socks in his bag for cross country and I want to make sure he has a snack. And he's like, leave me alone. I can do it myself, which is so appropriate. And I'm just really trying to hold that boundary. And I literally just published in the Atlantic about, you know, not tracking your kids and not checking their grades all the time. And I really believe that, but the school puts so much pressure on us to track and to nag. And so even though I don't overtrack and I don't have the school app on my phone, for example, which is a huge thing that I was encouraged to do that I absolutely resist and I advise other people to resist, I still want to nag and just be like, have you done everything? Are you sure? Are you, are we, are you okay? And I know that that's going to just nuke my relationship with my kid and that it's actually more important that we can have a good relationship and that he can be relaxed around me even then that he gets everything done. Like if I have to choose... I'm going to go with the relationship because that's what's going to be with us hopefully for a long time, right? Like 
ninth grade is ninth grade, but our relationship is hopefully, you know, goes for a, a while. So I really want to not blow up that relationship by nagging and turning into a monster. And it's so hard. Oh, I mean, I feel like that's <laughs> like we could just hit stop right now. And that is like such an important like just nugget for parents to sit with, to just know that the person who has just published this book in her own life is still walking that line and feeling the pull of how it feels to not do the thing that the school has clearly asked you to do, which is put the tracking app on your phone and look all the time. And that your guiding principle that I think we're going to just kind of come back to again and again is that if you're going to choose oversight versus the relationship, that you will choose the relationship again and again. And not that it's an either or, but that your North Star, your guiding light is what is the, my most important next move to protect and nurture the quality of the connection between my son and I. Exactly. And it's, it's, teenagers are really tricky because there are definitely times where you back off and realize later, like, oh, maybe I would have been useful there. But we need our kids to be able to come to us. And if we're always kind of hovering with them, they really don't like that. And then they won't come to us. So it's, you know, we have to give space, even if that means allowing for, you know, Leahy would, would say the gift of failure, but allowing for things to fall apart and for them to come to us and be like, I need help. The first order of business for you is noticing and being responsible for the anxiety that comes up inside of you that creates the urgency to ask, to check, to put the clean socks in the bag, right? Your first order of business is noticing the feelings inside of you. Is that right? A hundred percent. Just, yeah, the awareness of, and my anxiety is rising up, you know, about this and thinking about all the negative outcomes. And I'm not thinking about the negative outcome of what if I do this and my kid is really annoyed at me or you know, is so annoyed at my nagging that, you know, he huffs out without the things he needs or whatever. <laughs> you know, like it really can actually blow up. Yeah. Our daughter is a freshman now in college. And so we just went through that whole senior year college application process where the opportunities for nagging and pursuing and asking and following up and checking are just, they're everywhere, right? There's always a question you can ask. There's always a, did you think about or have you done and so it became really clear that it was eroding the quality of connection between our daughter and us. So we devised this thing called Summit, where on the weekend, we would go into Summit. And during the week, any of the three of us could write down questions or topics or things we wanted to bring to Summit. But unless we were in Summit, there was not conversation about the college application process. Like We carved out a time, a place, and a space for it. And it was so, I mean, it really did save our lives last year was going in. And then when summit was over, we would say we're, we had like a little ritual for going in and a little ritual for going out. And it was, you know, that was really what protected our relationship through that because otherwise my anxiety would have, you know, eaten me alive. I love that. And I actually, I interviewed a lot of kids applying to college and I interviewed a lot of kids in general, but teenagers applying to college were a big group of, of young people I talked to for the book. And a lot of them had rituals with their friends about when they were and weren't going to talk about it and what the rules were. And they actually really used great boundaries with their friends. And often their most sort of bummer experiences were with their parents who didn't have great boundaries and would like share where they were applying on social media or would, you know, share their acceptances before they were ready to share or in ways that were embarrassing. But the kids actually did a great job of negotiating boundaries with friends in terms of, are we going to share where we're applying and also supporting each other? They would have like little rejection parties and like take each other out for ice cream. And 
I was just so impressed, actually. That was one of the things I really was noticing about young people is they're very good at these things. That's incredible. I love that. They, I love that they, they felt something was amiss and they created systems around how to manage it. Okay, so there's always a generational divide, right? Parents are always raising kids across some kind of, you know, technological advancement in society kind of a divide. But what seems so striking is that parents today were not parents who grew up with iPhones in their hands. Yeah, pretty soon it'll be that way. But this feels like an enormous divide. Is it a bigger divide that we as parents are parenting across today than previous generations, or it's a different quality? Like what is, how significant is this technology divide that we are parenting across today? It is significant in some ways because we didn't grow up with Discord and TikTok and, you know, Snapchat, but it is also some of the emotional coming of age experiences with friendship and dating and navigating relationships with school. Those things are less different than we might think. And we we may kind of over mystify that because our kids can legit say to us, hey, you didn't grow up with TikTok. And of course that is true. But that doesn't mean we didn't grow up knowing how it feels to break up with someone and know that they're going out with someone else, right? It's true that our kids might see the pictures and that's painful in a different way. But it's not like we haven't been through both romantic and friendship breakups, just for example, as like, so it's not like we have no basis to understand their experience. I mean, I think actually our kids, depending on where and how we grew up, may have more to say to us about the uniqueness of the pandemic experience (laughs) that they went through and and to say to us, you have no idea, right? So unless you grew up like in a lockdown because of a war situation or something, you probably would have to say, yep, that's true. I didn't miss, you know, my kid was home for 18 months. There's a grade he never attended school for. I have no analogous experience, but I have been left out, you know, and I have experienced people, you know, thinking that I'm very different because I do or don't participate in a certain activity, whether that's like smoking cigarettes, you know, in my generation or something else. So how do we as parents leverage the opportunity for connection while respecting the actual differences? Because I think, yeah, there's a risk of erring on the side of, I understand exactly what you're going through. I was young once too, but there's also a risk of parents throwing up their hands and saying, I can't understand anything about what your life is. How do we hold on to that tension? I think we listen more than we speak always. And especially with adolescents, that's so important that we just are very curious, but not nosy. And a great thing to do is to ask about what they see and observe with others, because that also picks up their discernment without feeling like we're prying. So if your kid wants a new app, if they're a younger teenager and they're like, I want to add Snapchat, how do you see other people using it? What do you hear about the app? If they're already using an app or in a group text or in a Discord, what do you see people doing in that space? Have you ever met someone online where they're very different when you meet them in person? Getting a sense of their discernment and treating them like they're the expert and you're the learner but without mystifying it. And then, you know, when we are helping kids in the moment, like if they're home on a Saturday night, seeing people at the sleepover, at the party, at the event that they either didn't feel comfortable going to or weren't included in, that's when, I mean, I wouldn't go right to your own experience. I mean, I would just start with trying to guide them into making a choice of how to spend time that will feel better. Like the hope in that situation is that first your kid will stop looking at the phone because that is literally putting the bad feelings, you know, into their heart, right? So like, you want to like turn that off. First of all, you don't want to sit and watch the sleepover unfold in real time because you're really hurting yourself. 
And that's when you want to be available to be the B plan for your kid of any age. And there's no other relationship where I would say that's healthy. Like if your spouse or your best friend wanted you to be their B plan, I would say like, heck no, don't be their B plan. But I do think with a teenager, like maybe you were planning to catch up on email or you were going to watch your shows and you know, you figured they had plans because they've been so busy lately. And suddenly they are home feeling pretty wrecked about the fact they're not included in something or couldn't be part of it. That's the time to be like, hey, do we have any episodes of our show? You know, like for us, it would be like a last week tonight or a Battlestar Galactica. It would be like, let's do the thing or like, let's go out, you know, for your favorite meal or let's order in something you really like, but really giving them without making a big deal out of it, but just to be like, I'm available and like really be not like, I'll be here for you when your friends aren't, but just kind of like, oh, this is like a nice like Saturday night bonus. Like, would, you know, do you want to watch your show? Like I'm, I'm down for that. And even if it's something that wouldn't be your first choice activity, that would be where you're like, you're going to be in that space. And at, at, at minimum, encouraging them, even if they don't want to hang out with you, which also might happen, to put away their phone and do something that brings them joy, whether that's rereading a favorite book, maybe there is another friend group that they could plug into and, and, and spend time with. Maybe there is, you know, a show they like to rewatch. But anything we can do that helps them connect with something that brings them joy and recognize like, it's okay to share with them, you know, that, yeah, that must hurt. I'm, I'm sure that's not fun to see, but also we don't want to stay there because we don't want to treat kids like being left out as being wronged either. And that we certainly don't want to think of it as bullying. I mean, I've had parents occasionally like share things where they're like, my kid is being cyberbullied. And then the story they share is other kids did something and posted about it. And I'm like, well, that's, that's not cyberbullying unless they're writing to your kid from the party and saying, we didn't invite you because we hate you and you deserve to die, then that that veers into cyberbullying, right? But but if they're just posting, even if they're posting with some intent to hurt, which I'm not going to say teenagers would never do, because if they're just posting though, like you do have the choice to look away <laughs> as hard as that is to do. Yeah. You've given so much good advice there. I love the B plan. I just love it. It's so gentle. And I love that you're reminding the parent that you're not going to be asking for an, an award or a trophy for being available to your kids when they when their friends aren't, nor are you going to be offering pity. I'm so sorry you're stuck with your parents. You're just making yourself available and giving those opportunities to model and to guide towards when something hurts, put it down, step away from it, and fill that time and space with something else. It's a beautiful place for parents to hold during the adolescent years. It's really quiet. It's really in the background, like just that steady, like go, go ahead and venture out from the nest. But like, we're here. If something falls apart, we're here. And the, you're right. We wouldn't do it. And we wouldn't want somebody to tolerate that in an adult to adult relationship. But the adolescent parent relationship is just so different. And what you said about when kids want the new app, I think it is easy for parents to either get panicky about it, like there's no point, what's that for? It's going to lead to this, this, and this, but to instead empower your kid as the expert. Okay, what are you seeing? What are you noticing? Talk me through it. That's just another another way of making the conversation relational and helping them learn what they're going to have to learn, which is how to be discerning about technology. What's the technology that elevates you? What's the technology that leads to rumination and negative self-talk and tanks your self-esteem? Such wonderful options in there, really. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. 
Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. So your origin story for your new book, Growing Up in Public, is that you surveyed parents and you asked them, what do you worry about most in terms of your children growing up in public? What did they tell you? What did we tell you as parents? What were we worrying about? So parents said, I'm really worried that my kid is sort of feels kind of enthralled to the likes and they're just crowdsourcing their personality by because of the likes and because of what they get the most attention and response to on social. And they also talked about, I'm really worried my kid is going to say or do a dumb thing and get go viral for the wrong reasons. And if, if there had been video cameras on for my whole middle school, high school, college, that would have happened to me. Like they're not saying my kid is any dumber or more impulsive than I was. They're like, I know exactly how impulsive teenagers are because I was one. And it's really bad that all of this stuff is documented and shared. Mm-hmm. But such a huge fear. And so where do you want parents to start in terms of managing our own anxiety about all of the horrifying, terrifying places that our kids can end up, like in terms of the the going viral for the wrong reasons. Like what is our first move as parents in terms of kind of how do we as comfortably as possible hold that fear and that awareness? Because parents aren't making that up out of nowhere, right? We make that, that is something that, you know, we see happen, we hear the horror stories. So how, where do we start? I mean, a huge karmic thing we can do is never, ever amplify another teenager gone wrong, you know, because you really don't know what your own kid could do or what it could look like out of context. So even if you see a video going around your community and you're like, wow, that fills me with rage, that's outrageous, don't share it. And I would say actually the same for adults doing the wrong thing because there, there and there are reasons I'll get into, but but 100%. As someone who cares about kids, like I never want to be part of destroying someone else's reputation, even if they've done something that I absolutely believe needs to be repaired and is not acceptable. Sharing that is not something I need to be part of, amplifying that. And, and so that's one thing we can do. And if we all agree as a society that we're not going to do that, that would be really good. That would be a really big improvement over the current situation. And the reasons we don't want to do that is say, the kid has gone viral in a, because they've said something or or tried to use humor that in fact is not funny and that targets an individual or a group of people. Well, by sharing that, you just amplified that harm. And I think it's really important to understand that, that if you are outraged by something someone does and you share it, you're amplifying the harm. So there has to be a better way of dealing with our outrage, even when kids do things that are not okay. And I'm not, I'm not giving kids a free pass. I'm going to get to accountability in a minute because I do think kids do things that are harmful and they need to repair. But sh- again, we don't want to amplify that. So that's one thing we can do. And then we can also let our kids know. And we can let our kids know about the principle of mutually assured destruction as well. So think about 
you're so not invited to my bat mitzvah and how they had these videos of one another, you know, mostly just like doing like gross things, but also in some cases talking in a negative way about others in the community, right? So some of it was like booger videos and like videos where they like, you know, one of the girls like made her chest look bigger with like putting basketball up her shirt or something, you know, like, so like embarrassing in a body way, like, you know, passing gas, boogers, anything like that, obviously, like that has the potential to be embarrassing, but it's like a universal truth. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like there's a video of you farting, so you can't get a job and the videos of you farting in seventh grade. Like everybody farts, right? <laughs> like we don't want it on video, but it's actually not that shameful. It's just kind of funny and like weird of your friend to share it and not okay. But it's not going to be the thing that maybe like blows up your life, but it's incredibly embarrassing and that's not to be ignored. So in those videos, they know that that's the third rail in the movie. And the girl actually, even though they're in a terrible friendship conflict, she never shares the videos right? Because she knows about mutually assured destruction. And that is something to talk to your kids about. If you're in a group text with your friends and you get mad at one of them and you start screenshotting, well, guess what? If you've been in that group text for three years on your spam account on Instagram, do you think you've ever said anything that wouldn't sound so great out of context where they would screenshot? Like, don't go there. Like, that is not how you deal with it. Even if you're an ex-friend now and you're like, you know what, I'm done with this person. That is still not what you do. And I'm not talking about, you know, threats or anything like that. Like then you bring that to the authorities, you bring that to school. I'm talking about like your friend says something that out of context sounds real bad, but maybe in a long history of communication, you also have, don't screenshot and amplify. So we want to teach kids about mutually assured destruction. We want to teach kids not to amplify. Say a kid at school goes viral for saying something harmful. Don't amplify that. You can make your own decision about whether you trust that person, what you think of what that person has done. But one of the most important things you can do is take action to support the targeted group. Like if they have said something racist, what are you doing in your school to make sure that there's anti-racist curriculum and anti-racist policies? If they've said something problematic about transgender folks or queer folks, like what are you doing to make sure you're supporting those communities in your school or in your town? In other words, putting all the attention on the person who's made the harmful post takes away from our efforts to actually support solutions and support the targeted communities. So there's, a, I know I'm saying a lot here, but it's so important that we don't overfocus on making one kid go viral. And then another thing we need to do is remember that if it's happening once, like say you, it's a video of a kid using a slur, then you know that's the canary in the coal mine, y'all. Like that is happening everywhere. Don't think, okay, like, you know, like here we have this video of this one kid, we got her. And so I wrote about a kid in Virginia in 2021 for CNN. And it was basically like, oh, like this entire community in Virginia, which had tremendous problems with racism, including as at the curriculum level in their schools in Leesburg, Virginia, it was not just this one girl. And everyone was so ready to throw her under the bus for using a slur. And I'm like, you know what? She, she should be, have to repair using the slur. But you also need to deal with this in a community level because that is not the only kid doing that. And so if you treat it like, oh, well, we found the racist kid. It's Mimi Groves. You, you know, let's just like carry her out of town. And then we don't have a racism problem. Leesburg, Virginia is an anti-racist place. It was just this one girl. Wherever she learned that, I can't imagine. But I think that happens a lot. And we love to find someone to blame and, you know, sort of be the goat and, and put our sins on that goat. I don't think we should be doing that even to adults, but especially not. To children. That's right. It's a parent, you know, a parent who's doing that is kind of 
attempting to solve the moment by dealing with their anxiety and their rage by kind of casting out that one. And they're acting from a place of reactivity rather than, you know, slowing down and thinking, how, what do I want to model for my teen in this moment, right? It's an opportunity, that kind of moment. And it's hard. It's hard to ask a parent to slow down, take a breath, take a pause, choose a really careful, thoughtful response. It's a lot to ask of a parent. But when we as parents model reactivity, amplification, pointing the finger, it's what we're, that's what we're showing our kids. And that's, we're not, we're not offering something that is more tempered, more systemic, as you're saying, that really honors that that kid is a symptom of something larger that's happening. I think that's such a good point. And it feels like a great outlet for your outrage in the short term, but it doesn't really do anything to make the world better. Mm -mm. You know, I think when it comes to that sort of mama bear or papa bear, you know, that kind of parental protective instinct is really strong in us, but it is not our wisest self. A hundred percent. Mm-hmm. Okay, something that parents today are navigating, we, which you already have touched on, was this is this cult, what you call the culture of surveillance. The ability that you have, you could open up your phone or your laptop, you could log in and look at your son's grades right now. Things that posted maybe five minutes ago only, right? You might know something before he even knows it. So tell us about what is the impact of this culture of surveillance, first and foremost on parents, because I think that's that's where I want us to keep our focus. What is the impact of culture of surveillance on parents? It feels really anxiety provoking, and it seems like it wouldn't. It always seems like more data will make you feel less anxious, but that's rarely true, whether you're Googling a medical symptom you have, whether it's tracking your kid and being able to see their grades every five minutes. You think that that additional data will solve and heal the anxiety. And in fact, it can turn up the dial. And then the relationship consequence, like texting your kid in the middle of the school day and really, you know, pissing them off and making them stressed just grows then the cycle between you of like stress, resentment, feeling like their shoulders being looked over. Sometimes a kid has already handled the situation, like say it's a zero, they've actually already talked to the teacher and come up with a timeline for doing the work, or maybe it has been turned in, but the teacher, for whatever reason, hasn't entered it yet. And if you start to react, which it's almost impossible not to do when you see those like zeros and they, they I feel like they design these programs for like maximum stress. Like whenever I look at them, I just feel tremendously worried. And things can often be fine. And you, you're not giving things a chance to become fine, frankly. If you, you know, immediately contact the teacher or the, or the kid, your kid, it really can, you know, exacerbate parental anxiety. And the thing is, when I've talked to parents specifically of kids who are struggling academically, because you might be thinking, well, my kid's fine, but what about my other kid, right? Like I have one kid maybe who does everything you're supposed to do and everything's easy. And maybe I have another kid who struggles more. Those are the families that I found had the most stress with the grading apps. It's the families where the kids are struggling. And in that case, if you can, if you can outsource looking at it to your kid or someone else, like say they have access to resource or supported study hall or any kind of supports at school, maybe that person should look at it with your kid once a week, right? I, every day or multiple times a day is too much for anyone. But like once a week might be a good amount of time to check, but maybe it's not you. Yeah, I think you're right. When there's kids who have different needs, you know, and you have to have different strategies based on the kid. I think that becomes really complicated. But with our daughter, especially, I didn't, she didn't need me checking in on stuff. And I think that there was a part of me that worried that I was being neglectful, like a part of me that, and perhaps that was a part of me that, you know, associates with, as I was growing up, things that I feel like I wished that my parents had better understood about my experience than they would. I think there were ways in which I, I could have used a bit more, not 
monitoring by my parents, but a different kind of like connection and awareness and attunement from my parents. So I think that for me, there were ways in which I would get concerned, like I'm not checking, I'm not surveilling my daughter. Am I being neglectful? And so I had to tease apart, no, monitoring grades is different from being emotionally attuned and engaged. I think that's a tangle that parents might have to you know, like separate for themselves, that, that there you can be deeply attuned to your kids' experience in their life. That's different from monitoring their activity on, you know, their activity and their grades. And it really is tough because there's so much cultural pressure. And I think you have to ask yourself too, what can you live with in terms of an outcome, whether it's a relationship outcome or a college admissions outcome? You know, and you don't have control over the latter, by the way. Like you can push your kid and nag your kid for four years and they can still sort of knock it into the college that you imagined for them. So you have to decide, like, is this, am I willing to kind of risk the relationship on the altar of what we now know as a fairly intense, capricious process that still might not result in what we want? Yeah. Boy, oh boy. That is for sure true. And can parents remember every step of the way, there's going to be a college for your kids. Like we act like there's only about seven or eight colleges that are acceptable and everything else. Some, some, in some families, in some communities, right? The idea is that there's only this very, very small set of acceptable colleges. And that is just not the case. But my gosh, that is an entire... I was just thinking oof. that this week because you could say to a kid who didn't get into, say, Princeton, you know, it's not personal, but it feels personal when your friends with the same stats did get in potentially, it feels personal, right? And in some ways it is, right? Because it, it actually, they did sort of go down to some micro thing, right? Like say you have the same test scores and grades. And I think we do have to get over it because, you know, to bring it a little bit back to growing up in public, there's so much identity work and applying to college now that I didn't exist for me. I was not trying to convey the fullness of my identity. Like, yeah, I wrote an essay. I don't remember what I wrote about, but like, they were, pre, you know, I applied to State University of New York at Purchase and School of the Art Institute of Chicago and School of the Art Institute did a one day admissions thing where I took the train out here from New York, talked to people all day. At the end of the day, they told me I got in. I called my parents from Union Station and took the train back to New York. And you are not, you know, that, that is the difference of one generation. It feels quite striking. Yeah. Having gone through with our daughter last year, it, I was struck by how intense it was. Same thing with me. I mean, I, I applied to two schools. That was it. It was really simple and of an entirely different quality of what our daughter went through. Yeah. And the, the software, I mean, this is what I wrote about growing up in public. I talked to kids about Naviance, which is the, one of these college application software that my son's school uses, Maya Learning. There's a bunch of them. There's one called Square, I think at S-C-O-I-R. But they're, they're these sort of aggregating softwares where you, first of all, you put your recommendations through it. So again, it's really hard to opt out. Secondly, you see, I think the most painful part for most of the kids I talk to is you see yourself as a dot on a chart compared to other applicants, specifically from your high school, which is devastating because A, you probably know some of those people. And at a small high school, especially if there's a few schools on there, a few universities that maybe fewer people apply to, you're going to absolutely know like who from your high school went to, you know, I don't know, Cal Poly or McAllister. You'll be like, I know that person. And then you're actually seeing their grades and charts. I think it's a huge privacy issue, actually. And you're comparing yourself in this incredibly cold way. And who would want to see at work? You know, like if I, when I was still working in universities, like I wouldn't have wanted to see my chart of like, here's my productivity compared to my colleagues. No way, no way. Just because you can have that information doesn't mean that you should. Yeah, 
Devorah, let's talk about, I, I really want to get into what happens when parents don't see eye to eye on how much we ought to be monitoring or how much we ought to be posting, because I think this does become a source of tension in families. So let's just talk about posting. Because First of all, I love that you encourage us as parents, if and when we're going to post about our kids, that we say, post it with permission. Why? What is the power of including in our post about our kids? What is the power of saying, posted with permission? Because then your community knows it's okay to live that information with your kid. Like say your kid is transgender and has changed their name, you know, and you've posted with permission. That's really good because next time I see that kid, I can, you know, address them by their name that they're now currently using and not wonder like, am I supposed to know this? Or it could be something much less sort of momentous than that. It could be just like, you know, some news about them or some fun thing you all did as a family, or like maybe they just like went to Japan with their class for three weeks on some cool thing. And you were like, I'm posting with permission, this picture of my kid on the bullet train, you know, and and you can say, oh yeah, I heard you went to Japan. Whereas if you don't know, if the kid knows, if you've shared, then that becomes creepy. Uh Do you have a couple of rules of thumb around when a parent is in a moment where they want to post something about their kid? What are the check-ins that a parent needs to do within themselves? perhaps with their partner, perhaps with their kid? Like what needs to happen before a parent puts up the photos, writes the clever, you know, caption and then hits post? Yeah, I mean, I love your orientation toward co-parents because I tend to think mostly about your obligation to the child in terms of privacy and asking for consent, which is a great way to teach kids boundaries. It's a great way to make the culture of your family a place where kids feel safe. If your kid loves to belt out show tunes or hang out in their underpants at home, you know, and I'm thinking more of younger kids, but if they love to sort of be uninhibited in in the home space, you don't want to wreck that by sharing that with their fourth grade classmates and getting them teased. And then they never show themselves at home again because you just destroyed their sense of privacy and safety at home, right? So that's a huge thing is asking your kid permission. Now, if you have a partner that has strong opinions about posting that are different from yours, and I do know some families like this, like even in just my personal life, like I know one family where you know, there's a dad who came from the tech industry, really is very concerned about facial recognition. And my sense is his his spouse would be less worried about doing some sharing, like maybe with kid permission, but because one parent, you know, you do have to defer to the most, I guess, the most conservative on this topic parent in the sense if one person's less in favor and one person's more, the only way to be kind of on the same page is to go with less. And so their family, but the thing is that person was also willing to do the work of creating a way for that family to share with a password. So when their babies were born, I got emails from them saying, this is the password to the lockdown account. If you want to see pictures of the kid, here they are, friends only, here's the password. So I think it's one thing to be like, no pictures. It's another thing to be like, no pictures. And you do all the work of figuring out how we're going to stay in touch with people in a world where many people stay in touch on social media. And I think that that latter would be kind of a heavy burden to sort of be like, I'm the most worried, but I'm doing nothing to communicate how to deal with it. So this family took a really proactive and really was like, and please do not share pictures of our kids. Like they were very, very proactive. They let us know not to share. They let the grandparents know, right? And I think if you're going to have a way of doing things, which is no sharing at all, that's going to differ that much from many people's norms around sharing, you do have to be pretty proactive. 
in just making sure everyone knows your boundaries. Like, I don't know if they do this with playdates, like literally if they're, if they're dropping their kids off on a playdate and being like, by the way, don't share pictures of my kid. But I can certainly think of instances where my kid, you know, was shared, you know, on a play date or like vice by school. So I think the more concerned you are, the more you have to probably recognize that other people won't know that unless you let them know. But certainly to me, asking the kid is the most important thing. So I mean, I think sometimes, you know, obviously there's a, there's a very simple way that parents are sharing about their kids. Like you're saying that I would love to show the world that our son is taller than us because it's just so darling and so touching. And like, how did this happen? But I think there's also like at times deeper psychological needs that we as parents are trying to fill by sharing. You know, I think there's a way that we talk about worrying that our kids are seeking likes, but what are we, what are we as parents sometimes seeking? Maybe not even consciously when we post about our kids. Well, we definitely want to show the world our kids' awesomeness. And when other people do it and we don't, it can feel like, wait, do we not think our kids are great? I mean, so many people post kids on the first day of school, for example, or do post when their senior gets into college, that if you don't, it almost feels like you're withholding or making a different kind of choice. And it's one thing if you're totally off social, but if you're on social, but don't post about your kid, it can just feel like, what, am I not proud? You know, And that is really tricky if your kid doesn't want to be posted or you're rethinking the benefits versus risks of posting about your child. And I think many of us are in this place of kind of reconsideration. A really tricky scenario is when one kid wants to be posted and the other one doesn't. So I I talked to a family and the kid who preferred privacy was seeing their mom scroll and saying, wait, I can see which one is your favorite kid. And she was like, dude, you don't let me post and your sister does. How can you then be mad at me? But it's like, it turns out they can, your kid could still be mad. Right, know? that's right. They don't have to be rational. It doesn't have to be a rational story. I think kids have to feel their way into where they want the boundary to be. Maybe that kid then revisited. Okay, so it doesn't feel great when my mom posts. It doesn't feel great when my mom doesn't post. You know, that I hope my hope is that that opened up an interesting conversation about, is there a third option that we haven't considered? But I love any conversation where what's in the mix is how does the kid feel about it? How does the parent feel about it? Like, what are the possibilities? Like those conversations don't have, I love that none of this has easy, right, wrong answers, but by engaging in the process of what are we thinking is going to work or what used to work that no longer works? Like those are all relationship building kinds of conversations. And I love that when parents do that with their kids, they kind of do it from a a level playing field rather than I'm the parent. So I get to say what goes. I love the relational quality of it. Okay. I got it. There's no way I'm going to let you go without talking about (laughs) sexting and porn. So can we just finish up there and you just give us a little bit of guidance on both of those topics that spike parental anxiety? Again, so understandably, how do you want parents to be talking with kids about sexting? So ideally we're talking about sexting with kids in a proactive way where we focus on harm reduction and share with them you know, all the reasons not to sext, but not from and send nudes or underpants pictures or sort of sexy pictures or texts, not because it's shameful to like someone, to have someone like you, to want to be cute or hot or have someone see you, you in a sexual way. And I think that's a big leap for parents because I think because we don't want to see our kids that way, it's hard for us to acknowledge they might want others to see them that way. And so, you know, getting over that is tricky, but we want to make sure they can talk to us if they end up sexting potentially with a partner, for example, or someone they're interested in sharing an image. 
And if that image gets out of their control or is being shared in a way that's exploitative, or if someone harasses or cajoles or threatens them into sending a text, those kinds of coercive experiences with sexting are where we see trauma, just like, you know, sexual assault and sexual harassment is where we see trauma. Like kids who consensually and privately share images don't tend to be very messed up by that or at all mess, you know, like it's not a problem. And that messes us up because we don't want to, many of us, even sex positive parents, and I want to really stress this because I know your audience a little bit, like even sex positive parents who aren't necessarily telling their kids that like sex itself is sort of bad in some way for them or shameful might still really prefer for all kinds of reasons and including legal, social, and privacy risks that are real reasons and valid reasons that our kids don't do this, right? So I want to be clear. I get why parents don't want their kids to send these kinds of images, but they may do it. And you don't want them to be in a situation where they can't come to you, especially if they were coerced or if they were shared willingly and consensually, but then the image is shared without their consent. And we still see even in 2023, a double standard with how girls and boys are treated around sharing images. And that must end. We really need to be talking with both girls and boys and kids who don't identify in the binary with an equity mindset about this is why we don't want you to do it. But also if you do get an image or if a part, if you decide to share with a partner, they need to stay private no matter what happens. You know, you need to take it off your phone after you've seen it because it's risky. There's a social and privacy risk and a legal risk to keeping it on your phone. That's harm reduction. I also cite in the book two scholars, Samir Hinduja and Justin Patchen, who have other tips on safer sexting for teens and really for adults, like things like not including one's face to make the photo less identifiable. And as much as we might hesitate because that could seem like we're kind of giving kids license to send nudes. I think it's fair to say that that's definitely a harm reduction strategy. And it's it's one that some kids have thought of, right? It's, you know, it, it makes sense. But I think that's also where we see, frankly, differential risk with girls and boys. Because if a boy sends a bottomless photo, you know, below the waist photo, then that's less identifiable than, say, a topless pic that includes the face, right? And so... There are already differential risks for girls because girls, because of double standard, are more likely to be slut-shamed and then compound that with the fact that a topless photo might be more identifiable and you have the perfect mix of incredibly vulnerable situations for girls when photos get circulated without their consent. And that's where we just need to let all kids know, never circulate an image. If you get an image of someone you don't know, don't share it out. If an image of someone you do know is going around in school, they need your solidarity, not you spreading that image more. Treat that person like someone who had something stolen from them. Treat that person like someone who's been violated that you're supporting, not the other way around. And if you know who's sharing it, you know that person should be reported. And making a decision to violate someone's privacy that way that you know will be socially harmful to them because we all live in the same society with the same social rules. Like we know that's not okay. That's a much worse decision than just consensually sharing a photo with one person in trust. So yeah, we might not be thrilled that our kid did that, that did the, you know, sharing with one person. We also need to talk about flirting and nobody wants flirting lessons from mom or dad, obviously. But when we see inappropriate flirting, like in a TV show with our kids or that kind of thing, we can talk about that. And the other thing I've said is, and this, this is a gendered message as well, but to talk to boys about is girls just don't want those bottomless picks and especially not as a flirting tactic. 
If in a relationship, she asks you for one, you know, that's a different scenario. Again, you're still breaking the law. There's still social risks, but you're being asked. That's, that's different than sending it non-consensually. But sending those kinds of pics feels very violating. And one of the things girls said to me universally, every girl that I talked to was like, when I get those pictures, even if it was a boy I might've thought about dating or was maybe thought was cute or interesting, he's off the list. And I think sharing that with boys is actually more effective than saying it's illegal in X state or you're going to go to jail. I think just saying like, this doesn't even work. Girls actually don't like this. This is not going to get you where you want to go. Yes. Super helpful. That's the only angle that's going to work. It's the most effective angle for sure. That is across the board for teen girls. I think it's across the board for adult women. It is not, right? A decontextualized penis is not what, what generally the ladies are looking for. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And I think that teenage boys do need to understand, of course, yes, there's legal risks. And if you did this as an adult, you know, in the workplace or something, you, you could get in big trouble. But to really just clarify, because I think to lead into pornography that you also asked about, pornography gives kids really the wrong ideas about what partners might want. And, and this is one of the wrong ideas that I think really is like an actual light bulb moment. And we may think this is so obvious, but actually, yeah, talking to my adult women friends who are heterosexual and dating clearly like on Tinder and stuff, like it's not obvious because adult men think women like this too. So it's not surprising that like a 13 or 15 year old boy might, you know, not have a clue about that. And it can be really embarrassing. And I want to say to parents too, if you can't have this conversation with kids, because it's so difficult, so many of us were raised in ways that make it really hard to have very direct sex talks with our kids or, or to get into things like, oh, well, don't have your face in a, you know, underwear picture or whatever. Make sure there's someone else in their life. Like maybe they have an older cousin who's like 26, you know, or that can really break that down for them. Or maybe they are in a really cool, you know, youth group. Make sure someone can have a conversation with them because it's true that absolutely getting into some of these details is super cringe. And I do understand that your teenager literally might try to get out of the moving car to get away from you. That's how we always would do it. We would be in the car and I would say, okay, I'm going to share something with you. You can respond or not respond. Ask a question, not ask a question. Just offer a little micro lesson while they're in the car. It's a short car ride. I'm going to drop you off a dance. You can get out of the car, pretend like it never happened. But yeah, just to kind of, and, but you're right. If it's, if that's a bridge too far for parents, because it absolutely can be. There's also wonderful resources. I love Scarletine. We'll share some of our favorite sex positive resources. I'm sure that you have some as well, Devorah. Like there are places that kids can learn online, really wonderful stuff. I love the older cousin idea. And it's so, you know, I think that those older cousins can, because they just came through it. And I think it can feel really empowering for them to have a chance to talk to the younger cousins about, you know, some rules of the road and what they wish that they had known at their age. So I think that's, yeah, we want parents to be creative and expansive and think about who else they might be able to bring in and tap as a resource. Thank you. And this is also why you don't want to be just like looking at your kid's phone all the time and kind of over surveilling Because I mean, the last thing you want to see is, or I mean, there's so many last things you'd want to see, but like one of them would be like your own kid's nude that they sent to someone they like. Right. That's right. right. You don't want to stumble on that. Mm -mm. And that is the example, by the way, like we always will use like revenge porn or getting in trouble as this example. But I think it's fair to give kids as a reminder of like why maybe to be really careful about doing this is like the person who leaves their phone on the kitchen table and their dad sees your nude that you sent them. Like, oh, it's such a good point. Or the ways that, right, people's, the, your laptop gets kind of synced up with somebody, either the rest of the family's phones. Yeah, that's right. Think, these things happen. Those are the nightmare scenarios. And honestly, many dating parents I know have had the nightmare scenario in the other way where their 10-year-old you know, sees a nude that they sent somebody. So 
be really careful when your kid's like, I want to play with my phone. If you just sent someone you're dating a really hot photo, like, please, please, please erase it from the cloud before you let your 10-year-old play with your phone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, Devorah, I could have you on for another hour, but I'm going to wrap us up. Oh my gosh, you've given our listeners so much good stuff. And I does not matter that you you all just learned a ton from Devorah and this. You still need the book. It's a wonderful book. It is so incredibly user-friendly, well-written, thoughtful, comprehensive. Devorah, you did an amazing job with it. Thank you for writing Growing Up in Public. It was such an important offering. Thank you. I'm really honored that so many teens and parents opened up to me mm-hmm. about their stories. Yeah. And I just feel so like grateful for their trust in sharing their stories. So we will put links. We love it when we send readers to bookshop.org. Um, so we'll make sure that, that we've got links for people to go and get your book from bookshop.org or wherever books are sold. How else can people learn more about you and your work? I am at devorahheitner.com and I'm also at devorahheitnerphd on Instagram and I'm devorahheitner on Substack. So those are some places you can track me down. And yeah, I'd love if you want to support your independent bookstore by buying through Bookshop. I think that's a great way to go. Thank you so much, Devorah. Thank you. It's great talking with you. Thank you, Devorah, for bringing your insights about kids, technology, and parenting to Reimagining Love. Whether or not you have children of your own, I hope this conversation helped you think a bit more deeply about the ways technology shapes our lives and how we can cultivate a more intentional relationship to it. To learn more about Devorah's wonderful book, Growing Up in Public, make sure you check out the show notes of this episode. Until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Katie Pagich of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.